moment because here's the uh, slide presentation. You can see. Children's Church. I almost forgot. Thank you, Emily. The Children's Church this morning. So children, uh, head on out. Enjoy the time with Emily and Katasha. This is our Sunday morning for that. It is a joy to see the larger, uh, the, uh, a great percentage of people leave when you have children's church. It means you have a future. Please turn your Bibles for you adults. Please turn Bibles to uh, your copies of the Scripture to Joshua chapter 4. Now, uh, this morning, I'm going to do something. I don't often get the uh, privilege of doing this. Uh, last Sunday morning, we had... Uh, church at the Amish men at Behold. And one of the things that I've always wanted to do is do a follow-up to that. And so, but it'll fit for those who have not been there. But I, I first of all want to set some context for the scripture today. So think about a, a group of people, could be a million, could be, the numbers range, but it's the children of Israel. They're at the River Jordan, and they're all young except for uh, three, two old guys, Joshua and Caleb. Moses has died. Their leader has died. Uh, God buried Moses, actually, in a, in a place that no one knows so that the children of Israel wouldn't go back and build a monument to Moses and begin to worship Moses. Because our inclination, God understands that in our inclination is to ultimately is to move away from following Jesus and follow people or what people put up or what we do ourselves. So, so Moses was a very instrumental leader, and God, God just fixed that right away. And now, now you've got all these young people. And by the way, these people have experienced a lot of things in the wilderness, a lot of funerals. I once calculated how many funerals per day for all those people to die in the wilderness for 40 years. But they're all young, except for Joshua and Caleb, and Joshua is leading them. Let's read in Joshua chapter 12. Joshua chapter 4. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe, and Joshua said, Pass on over, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan, and take each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you, when your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the waters, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so the stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Now skip to verse 19. And the people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal, and he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in the times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over Jordan this day on dry ground. 
For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. As we think about what are the stones, think about that. So the children of Israel were supposed to take these stones, and I've talked about this before. They're supposed to set them up. And the whole point of them setting up those stones, that pile of stones, or in some monumental way, was that when they would walk by, that the the children would look at that pile of stones and say, Dad, what is that pile of stones there for? And then the father, or the mother, the parent was supposed to say, let me tell you the story of how God delivered us. As a people and individually. And think about uh, the fact that that this is, this is at the place where God has worked a mighty miracle in their lives. And think about the miracles in your life. The times that God has worked in our people's lives. The time that God has worked in Providence's life. But even bigger than that, it's supposed to be connected to something bigger. The community of God's people. Saying, look at how God delivers his people. And notice that in the, in the last part of the passage I read... Joshua talks in first person about crossing over the Red Sea. The waters of the Jordan, as the Lord your God, in verse 23, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us. Who is the us? It's Joshua and Caleb. They're the only two people that know that God dried up. They're the only two people that were there. And they're already saying, look at what God did for us. And when we think of history and tradition, see if I can run this thing. Well, there you go. So, what do these stones mean to you? Let's just think about this. What are our memory stones? Where do we find a place of identity as providence, but as Christians first? But I think this is about bigger. It's about being a part of the family of God. This is about being a part of the children of Israel. Because Paul says in Romans that the children of Israel, the true Israel, are those whose hearts are circumcised. Us. And we belong to the family of God. And I think that when we think about history and think about last week, as we, uh, for those of you who were there, as we began with Jesus, and we worked our way around, and we talked about scenes from history. In a few minutes, you'll see a few of those pictures. You saw those places where God moved mightily. Sometimes, it didn't feel like that to the people where it was happening to. But God was moving. And when God moves, looking back at history helps us understand and evaluate our traditions to identify the valuable and essential. I was thinking about traditions this week. Uh, I need to shut that off, right? I shut the mouse off, I think. I turned the mouse on. So it shouldn't move anymore. Okay, so, so evaluating our traditions. We have a lot of traditions as Anabaptists. And sometimes we get caught up in saying we shouldn't have any traditions. But some of the things that, that, that we have had as a people group for 500 years are healthy and good. And they're godly. They're a part of what makes up providence. This group of believers today, all of us sitting here, Church of the Brethren fits right in here. 
They are Church of the Brethren. And, and, and so let's think about the good pieces. Now, I, we, we actually do need to evaluate our traditions and say what piece of what we've brought forward actually belongs to the family of God and what piece is custom. I was thinking as I was preparing earlier this week, I actually went to the clip on, in the Fiddler on the Roof where Tevia says, uh, and how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Traditions. Now I'm not going to sing it. But, but a tradition is a transmission of a custom or a belief. And we actually have to work today as providence, as the people of God, as Anabaptists to say, what is a custom and what is a belief? Some of the things that we do are customs. Doesn't mean we should quit doing them. Everyone lives in, in, in culture and customs. Doesn't mean we should quit doing them, but it means that they're not on the same level as beliefs. What are the beliefs that we want to pass on to our children? What are the beliefs that have been passed on to us that are valuable and essential? And I think about, well, we'll look at several in a minute. That, so a, a, a clearer understanding, kind of looking back at saying, how did God move in history, helps us evaluate our traditions and our customs and help separate, begin to separate those out. That's a lifelong thing that we need to do. It also helps us evaluate current challenges to truth. There are a lot of challenges to truth in today's world. But they're not always new. In fact, they're not new. The church, the people of God, have faced the challenges like we have in the past. We can think about the current challenges, gender issues, uh, what constitutes a marriage. And, 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 and throughout history, the people of God have faced those questions. Because they ultimately come back to several large questions. Who's in charge of the universe? Where do I fit in that picture? And who do I answer to, ultimately? Because see, if I don't answer to somebody, God, then I can do whatever I want to, whatever, excuse the language, but whatever, and I say this intentionally, whatever the hell feels good to me, because that's where it'll lead you. Because when you worship, when, when you become consumed with whatever pleases you, and I, I, this was a good lesson to me thinking about it again this week. If you become consumed with whatever pleases you, who do you answer to? Yourself. And that's why you have the current challenges to truth. So you just go back, you reduce it down and say, how have God's people throughout history dealt with this? It also creates... A good understanding of who we are, our history, creates a framework for understanding and relating to a broader world. A number of years ago, uh, I was speaking to a non-Anabaptist person. And he said, you need to quit apologizing for being an Anabaptist. I said, oh, I didn't know I did. Oh, he said, every time. Whenever you talk about history, and it was, it was uh, in, a, in a history 
a college history course, whenever you talk, in a, in a religious history course, whenever you talk about your people, you apologize. He said, you don't hear me apologizing for the Lutherans. I'm Lutheran, he said. He said, That's, you know what? You are who you are. And he said, help, help. it helps you if you can embrace who you are as a people and say, every, the Church of the Brethren, the Luther, the Presbyterians, the Mennonites, the Amish have a place in the ecology of the kingdom of God. And when we can see it like that, then it helps us evaluate, it helps us not look at our brothers and sisters who are different than us and put them down and figure out how we can be, we're, we're just a little better than everyone else. We're not! We're humans. But God has called us at this point to be in this, in, in, as Anabaptists. And so, how, what is it that we bring to the world that is healthy and good? What have we done for 500 years? And I think there, there is some things that we have brought. Think about I can make the clicker work. Think about the first baptisms. Those of you who are there, this is uh, George Blaurock falling down on his knees and says, someone baptize me in the name of the Father. I'm a sinner. That's a first step. I'm a sinner, he said. I'm a sinner. And now you can imagine his brothers and sisters, 21 people in the room poking each other and say, yeah, Brother George, we know. And then he said, someone baptize me. What George was doing there was making himself accountable to the other group of people around him. He's saying, this is who I am. This is who I want to be. And they said, let's do something different. Let's actually, uh, the church needs to be, and by the way, their, their division was not about baptism. Their division was about what the church should look like. Because if, if the church is made up of everyone in Holmes County, you know, everyone in a geographical region who has been baptized as a baby, then you've got all kinds of issues. They were saying the church needs to be made up of those who made a choice to follow Christ. And when you make that choice, you reflect it in baptism. And they base that on their understanding and their study of Scripture. So here they are studying Scripture. How do we study Scripture together? Do we dialogue? Do we take it back to and say, what does God say when we're faced with questions? When we're faced, as providence, with questions about how to live in the modern world, we can look at history, but ultimately we need to take it back to, like these people and say, what, does, what, what have the people of God done in the Scriptures? This is the clearest guide for us. And for that, they died. Now, Again, these people would, would tell us, don't focus on how we died. Focus on how we lived that led us to that place. So, uh, you, we all sang a song this morning. I actually thought of this scene when we sang the song, I Surrender All. Do you? What peace do you keep back for yourself? Because when you surrender all, it will ultimately lead to this place. Now, it may not be at the hands of the state or the hands of your enemies. It may simply be death. And when we're confronted with death in whatever form, it boils everything down to who am I, how have I lived, and who have I followed. 
This is Felix Mons being drowned. But the, the lesson that we can learn, again, it's not about the fact that he was tied up in this manner. And it is, I mean, it is ultimately about the fact that his mother stood on the, the shores of the river and encouraged her son to faithfully go to his death because it will be worth it. What do we believe about God and the afterlife? Some of us have a hard time thinking about heaven because we try to create our heaven here on earth. All the pleasures of the earth surround us. Are you willing to give those up? Doesn't mean that, you know, I, don't, I, I grew up in kind of a world where I surrender all meant, boy, if I sing that real loud, then God's going to take me to Africa where I don't want to go. Or whatever. Or he's never going to let me get married. That's not who God is. God cares about you, and he wants you to live in your gifting, to live in your calling, to live as a fulfilled person, giving back to the world. But it's going to be messy and painful because you live in a fallen world. And someday, when we get to heaven, heaven is not going to be... I Also, when I was a kid, I used to not want to go to heaven because, well, I, I want to go to heaven. Because the alternative isn't good. But I thought it would be an eternal hymn sing. And I didn't really want it. Two hours was enough in a hymn sing. Or an hour and a half. I didn't want to go to an eternal hymn But that's not what heaven is. Heaven is where we will be the most fulfilled, the richest. And we'll be able to do what God has called us to with the full gifting and full knowledge. Now I see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. So one of the hardest things these, this group of people then faced is, should we defend ourselves? And they actually moved away, and I, I couldn't get all the picture on, but they moved away from the use of the sword, and they said, we will not defend ourselves, because defending ourselves ultimately brings it back to us. And, and I, or, or we will not bear the sword, they would say. We are not called to be God's avenging angel here on earth. That's someone else's responsibility. So to bring vengeance through the use of the sword, I, just, I read this week an early Anabaptist writer who said I am, that, that the church is not called to be God's avenging angel. That is the responsibility of the state. And the state isn't perfect in doing that. And this is a man who is being persecuted by the state. That the state is not perfect in doing that. I'm putting this into my own words. But ultimately we are called to bring life and love to our world. And you can't do that if you try to kill somebody. Take their life. And, and this is probably the most uh, well-known scene. This is the story of Dirk Willems in the scene. Dirk, and for those of you who weren't there, Dirk Willems is a thin light man, an Anabaptist preacher, who in 1569 was captured for his faith. He escaped prison, ran across the canal with thin ice, and, on the, and he was seen, he was pursued, and his pursuer fell through the ice. Well, Dirk had a choice, but he turned around and helped his pursuer out of the ice. His pursuer actually wanted to let him go, but his colleagues on the other shore said, no, your life for his. So Dirk was chained to a soldier and two and a half weeks later was burned at the stake. I went back and checked again this week. Dirk had a family, a wife and children. But I wonder how often Dirk thought in that two and a half weeks in prison, I wonder if I should have turned around. Should I have turned around? Was that God's way of delivering me? Look at the powerful way I could impact the world. 
without knowing. He went to his death without knowing that his story would be written down, without knowing that 475 years later we would be talking about Dirk Willems. The choices that we make in life, whether we bring life or whether we bring death, whether we bring encouragement or whether we bring cursing, those things are important because we never know the impact that we're going to have on our world. So a part of looking back at history is looking at these people, people like Jacob Hostetler, uh, looking at these people and saying, what did they do that, 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 what did they do and how did they live and what did they have that allowed them, their story, to be a part of our history? Now, it's not all good. See, in the, in the Bible, this pile of stone comes up again. It, it comes up in Matthew when John the baptizer, this wild man, is out baptizing. And he's, he's baptizing and he looks up and he sees many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. Then he cried out to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up a children for Abraham. He is baptizing at the very spot where the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River. And this, this, these stones in Greek is specific. It means a certain pile of stones. And it may not be the exact pile of stones that Joshua let there, but all the children of Israel, all the Jews there understood he was talking about a pile of stones where the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River. And John is saying, look, if you don't look back at history and you rely on the fact that you're Mennonite or the fact that you're Jew to think that it will save you, it won't. In fact, God could look at, down at these stones from these very stones and raise up a people of himself. And God did. I happen to think that, and, and many scholars think, that this, this is the pile of stones that Joshua set up. Or at least a reflection of that whether they redid him or whatever. But he's pointing, John the baptizer is pointing out and said, a new way is coming, a new way is coming, and you cannot, and, and by the way, this was also true in the Old Testament. It's not true just in the New Testament. People weren't saved because they were Jews. Hebrews 11 is clear about this. That the, children, the people of God who were saved in the Old Testament were saved by looking forward towards Jesus just in the same way as we look back to, towards him today. And so it is about something much bigger than ourselves. And it's about much bigger than you being Amish or Mennonite or Brethren or Lutheran or whatever. If you use that to say, well, that's why I get into going to heaven. And by the way, we often say we don't, but do we? Do we actually think that, well, we're, we're pretty good people. It didn't take quite as much of Jesus to save us. See, in our history, there's also times when we've done very poorly with history. This is Munster where these uh, Anabaptists took over a city. And they said, we're going to get involved in the process. They, they were first elected to the city council, and then they took over the city. What a great place. The Anabaptist kingdom of Munster, led by a young, dynamic preacher named Jan van Leiden. He was, and, and Bernard Rotman. And they took over the city, but very quickly it kind of devolved into a mess. They said, well, what are we going to do with all the Lutherans in the city? All the people who are unwilling to be baptized. So they made a decision to chase them out of the city at the point of the sword. It goes against the very core nature of who they were. In a sleet storm, they, they drove those people out of the city. 
And it upset the balance in Europe, the power balance in Europe, the, and both the, Luther, both the uh, uh, Protestants and the Catholics came against This is 1535, 10 years after Anabaptism. And, and, and I'm, I'm telling you, well, let me just say a few more things about the, what, what happens in Munster. The leaders very quickly presumed to take all power. And they begin to say, you can't lock your house. In fact, if we want to come in and take something, we, we get to come in and take it, as leaders, you know. And, and of course, Anabaptism is, is, is king here. And, and so we come in and, and we take over. And very quickly, uh, some of the leaders begin to say, we should, be, we should have multiple wives to populate the world with uh, as many Anabaptists as we can. But just the leaders. And if a husband, if there was an attractive woman, the husband would be killed so that the wife could marry one of the leaders. It's a horrible situation. But it, it, it's happened repeatedly in history in our people. Most recently, Sam Mullet and Burkholz. There's so many similarities. And it, it happens in small ways in families and churches when, when power is assumed to be the way that we go forward. Power is not the way that we go forward. Strength in Christ is. And there's a big difference. So, when we think about our history and the way that God has moved in our lives, let's sow seeds. Let's just begin with our children and families and reach out to the people around us and care about them and love them and bring life to them. I, I was thinking about this and thinking about all the children of the world. We, we used to sing this song, um, all the, God, God Loves the Little Children. I was thinking about that song this week and thinking about all the children of the world and, and how, who is going to actually tell them unless... And it, it's interesting to think about telling the people outside, but what about telling the people inside, telling your family, the people around you, this is how God has worked in my life. You know what is the most powerful gift that you can give the people closest to you? Telling them, Jesus is working in my life and this is how he's doing it. Because when you do that, you're like George Blarock. You're saying, I'm a broken person, but Jesus is working. And it invites, Je- invites people into the presence of Jesus in a big way. When we think about history, though, it has to be founded on, on something. And I, what, what kind of led me to this is a passage uh, as is becoming my favorite. And this is Jesus uh, as reflected on the Behalt mural. He's 10 feet high. He's the tallest figure in in the, in the painting. He has the, the wounds in his hand, the scar in his side. Here's the empty tomb, and here's the church baptizing thousands. But I was thinking about the passage, and I'd like to point us back to the passage. Oops. Sorry, David, I think I closed it. Give me the last slide. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 3. I'd just like to read and end with reading this and thinking about this just a little bit. 1 Corinthians 3, I'm going to begin reading at verse 10. Follow along. According to the grace God has given to me, this is Paul writing, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will, de- for the day 
will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now the context of this passage is division and strife in the church at Corinth. It's what Paul's been writing about. And we often look at this passage and point to this passage and think about this passage as being about our works in the future. You know, the work we do, the good works we do are the bad works. That's not what this passage is talking about. Now, now you could maybe reflect at that, but, but it's not about our, the relationship of our works and our heavenly reward. Rather, it's about what we do, how we work within the body of Christ. Whether we bring strife or unity. Whether we bring life or death. Paul is speaking specifically about the work done in the community of the church. Think about this. Let the foundation is laid. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the living stone. And when we build on him, we bring life to the world. We bring gold and precious metal. We bring strength. We bring unity. We bring life. When we work, when we work to bring life in, inside the body of Jesus, we're actually building Jesus. So, so this passage is talking about how and, and the ways that we operate within the body of, of Christ. What does that mean for us practically here at Providence? Well, it means that our first goal should be to bring life to Providence. To each other. To bless each other. To speak words of encouragement to each other. And there's a certain warning implied here for those who bring strife and disunity. You may be saved, but you're going to suffer for it. Your work will be burned up. The context of this passage is about unity in the church. The strength of unity is stones laid together on the living foundation that can rise and build. And so when we evaluate who we are as people, first of all as providence, this small group of believers, then as believers reaching out in Holmes County, then as Anabaptists, Mennonites and Anabaptists in our world, and then as part of the body of Christ, how are, what are we doing to build on that foundation? Let's stand together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we invite you to take what was shared and build it. Lord, cause us to reflect on how we're bringing life and strength to the body of Christ. Cause us to reflect how we're bringing that to the people closest to us. And, and cause us to think about how who we are in very broken ways has, has created this, this body right here. And give us vision and strength and heart to build on the true foundation. 
thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name.